Hello everyone and welcome once again to Ultimate Motorcycling's weekly podcast, Motos and Friends. My name is Arthur Coldwells. In the first segment this week, editor Don Williams talks to us about the new Benelli Imperiale 400. This hyper-retro machine has styling that makes it look like it comes straight from the 1940s or maybe the 1950s. On paper, the Benelli is truly unimpressive. But, always one to keep an open mind, Don takes to the urban streets, curious to see who exactly might enjoy this motorcycle. There's a chance that Benelli, with the Imperiale, has managed to create a riding experience that is a good deal more than just the sum of its parts. In our second segment this week, editor-at-large Neil Bailey chats with author Rob Brooks. Rob is the founder of the RoadDirt.com website, and he also has authored a couple of books available on Amazon as well. Despite a bit of a rough start to his motorcycling career, Rob has most definitely found his passion, and he clearly plans to keep exploring the world of motorcycles for a long time to come. So, from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. The new 2024 Benelli Imperiale 400. So you have to have that French accent when you say it. It's spelled like Imperial with an E at the end, which changes everything. So wouldn't that, wouldn't that be it? Wouldn't that be Italian accent, not French? Well, I, I, Imperiale. How would you say it in in it- Italian? Imperiale. Oh, I can't say it like that. <laughs> Way too affected. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's too that's too good. <laughs> so I'm going to have to Imperiale 400. Uh, anyway, there's there's a lot of this is just one of these stories where this bike is very simple, and I and I got it from Benelli, and uh, I thought it would be this short story because it's a simple bike but it turns out to be very complex it was a very long review and so i'll I'll be i'll be talking about a lot of different things bouncing around on this one Uh, the first thing that people might be interested in is that benelli has changed its importation system Uh, they had a company that was importing the bikes and then you know distributing them through their network in the united states and they decided that wasn't working for them and now this is where it gets complicated and I'll, I'll keep the complication out. Basically a company associated with Benelli, the boss Benelli in, in China is now doing the, the importing distributing. So it's, it, you know, the short version of that is Benelli is doing self-distribution, self-importing, you know, like Honda or Yamaha, Suzuki or Kawasaki or, you know, the big companies do that. You know, some of these smaller companies don't. So they're just, they're, they've, they've cut out the middleman and they're doing it themselves. And in doing that, they also kind of changed up their lineup a bit and they got rid of the uh, Liancino 500, which I really liked. Uh, it's, it, it's a retro style uh, 500, obviously. Uh, and it was, but it was kind of like a, re- a retro style in the way of like a Yamaha XSR uh, is or a Kawasaki RS version. It's kind of a modern bike with some some retro affectations to the way it looks, but it's, you know, the Liancino had a double rivet cam liquid cooled motor. So there was nothing retro about the motor or how it looked just like the Yamaha's and the Kawasaki's have double rivet cam liquid cooled motors. So they don't look like a vintage bike. So this new bike that they replaced it with, it's not, it's not new in the, uh, 
in the world, but it's new to the United States. It's been around for a few years in uh, India, where it seems to be a big, big part of the the business and uh, you know, big part of the sales of the bike. So anyway, so this now this 2024 Benelli Imperiale 400 shows up on our doorstep, and we're like, oh, well, look at this. <laughs> this bike looks retro. I mean, it really looks retro. Uh, you know, it, it's patterned after a 1940s. Uh, Benelli called the Valove Laterale, which was a, a 500 single that was like kind of a, you know, at the time a sport bike. But of course, now we would look at that as not a sport bike, but more just like an upright normal bike. And this, that's what the uh, the Imperiale 400 is. It's an, a, a very retro 40s, 50s style, you know, you sit totally upright. It has a sprung seat. Uh the foot pegs don't fold. There's a lot of things about this bike that's retro, including, most importantly, the motor. They didn't put a modern motor in there. They designed a new motor that's a long stroke, 400 single, air-cooled, two-valve, not push rod, but they do have these little uh, styling things on the engine that makes you kind of think of a push rod, but not overly, you know, so it's, they, they're not trying to totally fool you, but there's a, a bit that makes it look like it has a push rod, but it doesn't. It's an overhead cam motor, but still, the motor looks very retro and it is a unit design, not a, not a separate uh, engine and transmission. So it's not quite totally authentic, but within the realm of what's available out there, it's kind of on the level of like the Kawasaki W800, which looks pretty, pretty retro. You know, this isn't like one of those neo retro bikes. It's, it's way retro. So when you see it and when you're riding around on it, people think you're on an old bike. Nobody looks at it and goes, oh, that guy's on a new Benelli. No way. You know, even motorcycle riders, you know, I'll stop at a light or something and somebody else on the bike goes, oh, that's a cool old bike. You know, nobody says, oh, you got the new Benelli, <laughs> you know. So it has, if you know, if you see it, you'll understand what I'm talking about. But it really has that retro look The, you know, I mean, there are, again, there's other things. There's like it has disc brakes, but it also has wire spoke wheels with tube tires. Uh there's fuel injection, but it, the fuel injector is hidden behind a little panel. So you don't really, you don't see it kind of like uh, Triumph does with the Bonnevilles. So, you know, it, you don't see a carburetor, but you don't, you also don't see the fuel injection unit. So it just, it all looks good. I mean, it really, and it's got a long pea shooter muffler. Long, but again, with little modern affectation is, is that in the header is, is a catalytic converter with a shield on it. Something you wouldn't have seen back in the, you know, 1940s or 50s. But still, when you look at the bike as a whole, as I said, anywhere I go on it, people go, cool old bike. Everybody thinks it's an old bike. So you're not getting like, isn't, if, if you're on a Yamaha XSR 700 or Kawasaki's yeah, uh, Z650 RS, nobody goes, cool old bike. They know exactly what it is. It's like a cool a bike that has that cool retro styling, but it's a new bike. So I've settled that. You're that, and that's the most important thing to know. In a way, it's like when you're riding this bike around, you look cool. You look like you're on this old bike, and you know you're ready to ride the do the the cannonball run that they uh, they do every year or two, where they go from coast to coast on bikes that have to be I think it's at least ninety years old. So. You kind of look like you belong on that. You know, if, if, if I could go riding in one of those little caps and, you know, in a long, <laughs> long coat that, you know, goes down to your knees and you'd be riding around and you have a scarf and you'd, you'd fit perfectly on that bike, on this, on the 
Imperiale 400. It really has that that retro look. And, you know, I, I know I keep saying it over and over again, but I really want to emphasize to anybody because, you know, it's a podcast. So you can't see the bike. This bike looks retro. And yeah. a lot of things about it are retro. The seating <laughs> position, very retro. Uh, you know, that motor, as I said, air-cooled 402 valve. Well, that's, you know, except for the fact there's overhead cam, that's still pretty retro. So what's, the, what's it like to ride? Well, the first thing I can tell you, and the most important thing to, to, to understand, and it is important to understand this so that, you know, you don't get the bike and you're disappointed, is the bike is really slow. Uh, it, and it's slow in a strange way. You would think with a large stroke, uh, 400. It's a long stroke 400. So you'd go, oh, wow, the bike would have a good amount of torque off the bottom. You know, you roll the throttle on, it would give this good grunt and away you go. No. Uh, <laughs> the way they tuned it, uh, the the red line is at 6,000 RPM and, prob and the peak horsepower is at like 5,500 and the peak torque is at 4,000. So you really have to rev it to get power. So even though but you're not revving it a lot. You're revving it a lot relatively. You know, oh. it's like the peak power is hitting it, let's say 5,000, about that spot, which you'd say, well, that's not that high. Well, it is when the red line's six, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not when the red line's 14. Yeah, then it's not that, it's, it's coming on early. So relative to the power band of the motor, you need to rev the bike. Like if you're at a stoplight and, you know, here in California, we, we can filter to the front. If you don't want to get swallowed up by the cars, you have to rev that motor up and slip the clutch and get going because if you just try to put in first and just kind of lazily you know on a normal motorcycle you can just kind of lazily twist on the throttle and still way outrun any cars in this case you have to actively twist the throttle work the clutch and the gearbox to get in front of the cars and stay in front of them it's kind of like riding a grom or something like that it's like yeah you can do it but you need to pay attention and if and if and if somebody is in a Tesla or some other kind of higher performance car and you get on the gas, they're just going to leave you behind. I mean, there's no way. So it's, it, it, you have to excel, you have to really try to accelerate hard to stay ahead of the, the, just the average guy, but you can do it. And part of this other aspect of this is that you can go on the freeway on it because the power's at high RPM. So when you're at high RPM, it's not like flattening out. In fact, even though the red line's at six, the motor will spin up to 7,000 RPM without you even noticing it. It's, it's really smooth. Uh, you know, technical details are, are hard to come by because the bike is made, you know, in some factory somewhere. Then the people there don't speak English and don't explain it to us. But it's got to have a counterbalancer in it because it's really smooth. You, again, you'd think this long stroke 400 would be like, but no, it's nice and smooth. And so you can go up to freeway speeds. And I think I could hit 80 on it. You know, I mean, there's no acceleration at these speeds. Once you, whatever you're on the freeway, you know, if you're going 70 and you want to go 80, it, you twist it wide open if you weren't already. And then it kind of slowly, incrementally will, will get faster. But, you know, I rode it on the freeway all the way from downtown LA to the San Fernando Valley. And I was fine. You know, I stayed on the right <laughs> lanes, you know, and paid attention to my surroundings and positioned myself properly. But it's doable. And uh, so it's, it's kind of interesting from that aspect it's 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 really a city bike you know it's an urban bike it's a cool bike for you to ride around the you know and just look cool you know again I've, right. I've talked about this in other reviews it's about looking cool motorcycles a lot of, a lot of motorcycling is about looking cool and this bike makes you look cool if you think retro bikes are cool 
you know, obviously if you think a you know, super sport bike is cool, you're not going to think this isn't going to be your bike, but if you like that retro feel, this bike gives that. And so when you're riding around, you know, if, if you're not in a hurry and it's, and if you're in kind of a lot of traffic or, you know, if I'm in Silver Lake area of LA, which is very crowded or Echo Park around there near downtown, this, the slower performance, you don't even notice it. In fact, the, the throttle response is so lazy, slow that, you know, yeah. it makes it easy to ride, you know, in those kind of conditions, like everybody thinks, Oh, it doesn't have a lot of throttle response. Well, that can be a big positive. And the bike I should mention is 48.99. So it makes wow. it a really attractive beginner bike because the price is so low. The throttle response is slow. It's easy to ride. And, you know, the clutch, has a really broad engagement. The brakes are kind of wooden, so they work. But if you grab them hard, they're not going to do anything. You know, I could. It was, it was not easy to get the ABS to work to engage the ABS because the brakes just aren't that strong, and it has these fairly thin tires made by the company. I remember Cordial. Any of you? I've never heard of Cordial tires. Well, we first tested Cordial tires on the Benelli TNT 135 years ago, which is their little Grom competitor. And they were really good. You know, you'd think, how how do you know? Well, the Benelli TNT 135 will do 70 miles an hour, like on a mountain road. And so when we (laughs) were riding it, and it's on these little tiny wheels, we were like lean way over at 70 miles an hour and the tires were perfect. So I had this, I have this positive attitude towards cordial tires from that. And right. this bike again has cordial tires and they're very cordial and they, uh, they work really well within the context of this bike. Remember, you're not putting a lot of braking forces into the tires. You're not putting a lot of acceleration forces into the tires. And when you corner, there's, there's, there's decent lean angle, but you have to be careful because as I mentioned very early on, the foot pegs are fixed mounted there's no spring loading. So if you hit, you know, you're going <laughs> to drop. Them. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be careful on the right side. As it turns out, you know, when I dragged it, it was, I was actually dragging a shield on the muffler. So this shield on the muffler hit first and it's a little flexible. So you had a little tiny bit of flex, but I will say that when I hit, it, I was a bit alarmed, you know, that I was hoping I wasn't going to lift the rear wheel up and, and crash, but it didn't. And I was fine. On the other side, there's good cornering clearance. So you can, again, you're not cornering hard. The, the seating position of the bike, the truly upright old style, like you've seen the pictures of the guys on, you know, with the old bikes sitting there upright. So you're sitting there like that and you're not encouraged in any way to go really fast. You know, and one of our, one of our tests, when we test urban type bikes, we always go on Mulholland Drive, which is, a road that runs through the Santa Monica mountains and slash Hollywood Hills between a couple freeways. And it's it's about, it's about a 20 minute, 20, 30 minute ride, depending on how you, you know, traffic and stuff. But a lot of times there's not a lot of traffic and it's a pretty cool twisty road, as long as you're comfortable with there being driveways and things like that. So we're riding around and, you know, you just, it, it never did anything weird other than when I dragged it. You know, there's nothing about the way the bike is set up that encourages you to try to go fast. You just want to enjoy the ride, look at the scenery, wave to the other people like they're pointing at your bike. You know, when I go by the, uh, there's a million tour buses up there because it's near Hollywood. So 
you know, the tour bus people will get their cameras out and take my picture when I go by because they think maybe I'm Tom Cruise or something on, on one of his motorcycles. <laughs> right. So there's, you know, and that happens. That's, that's actually happened a lot of times to me on, on various different bikes. But, uh, you know, so people see it. It's cool. You just ride in a, in a very non-aggressive, friendly, enjoyed manner. I mean, it's it's kind of like a cruiser, but you're not in a cruiser position. You're, you're in a, a neutral upright position. But it's a cruiser in that you're not, you just cruise around on it. So, you know, when you're in the, in the city, you're just feeling good about riding the bike. And it, the suspension is another like, one of these shortcoming things. And <laughs> you just kind of, you know, it's, it's one of the things about the Chinese bikes that we run into. And it, if I didn't mention it before, Benelli is owned by a Chinese company. Uh, the design people are in Italy. They design the bike on a certain level, depending on the, you know, they don't design the motor, the motor's designed in China, and then the Chinese build the bike. So, okay, so you have this setup, but, but you have the manufacturing in China. The, like, the suspension on the bike is pretty crude, and I was actually kind of almost, when I, I was shocked when I first got on it, because when I got on, it's twin shock rear, uh, uh, conventional fork front, obviously not adjustable, you know. So you get on the bike, and the first thing the front end does is, like, half the travel like just kind of it just socks through half the travel you know that just just you getting on the bike takes away about half of the four and a half inches or whatever it is so the front end and then you kind of pick it up and down and it's like a lot of stiction it's not like a smooth action like a lot of stiction and a lot of springs so it's like well they didn't put much damping in so we'll put some stiction to slow things down <laughs> not, okay. not the greatest now the other at the shock it's like you've push down it's like well it's it's not moving you know it's like way oversprung so you have this oversprung rear and undersprung front and who knows what the damping is because it doesn't barely even come into play on either end and you think oh this is going to be horrible but when you ride it and the, the like i said with the forces that the motor putting is putting in and the design of the chassis being you know sitting upright you're not challenging the suspension and it's okay all the suspension has to kind of do is like you know kind of take the edge off the bumps of the road you know it's not you know a lot of times suspension on a sport bike is about how the bike behaves in corners well this bike you're not pushing it corners you're just rolling through and having a good time and so it's the suspension on this bike is really just about you know hitting hitting bumps or hitting dips and you know sometimes if you hit certain dips you'll want to kind of stand up but this is where i talked about earlier has a sprung rear uh, sprung seat so the right driver's seat has a has springs so it really makes a difference it's like you're going you're like you hit that 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 you know pothole or something and you think oh i'm gonna get jolted it's like oh no the springs then the seat took the edge off it you might feel it through your hands or through your feet but you're not going to feel it in your butt so or your back so it, it's actually totally comfortable and told this even as bad as the, the suspension seemed to be the bike still worked in town completely fine you know i didn't get even on the freeway i what i expected to get you know have problems on like the expansion joints or things like that and it didn't bounce me around anywhere as much as i anticipated it would so that's all kind of counterintuitive but it worked and speaking of the freeway again uh it has again the cordial tires the cordial tires are really good on the freeway uh the one of the our biggest complaint about the Kawasaki W800, which costs twice as much, more than twice as much as this Benelli Imperiale 400, 
is that the Dunlop's on there is some kind of GP not brand we don't know, you know, model we don't normally see because it's an 18 inch rear and a 19 inch front really wobbles on the freeway. It's really the, the uh, way it reacts to the rain grooves is, is sometimes scary, like truly scary. Like you think the front end's going to go, never does, but you think, man, I don't like this. It makes you not want to ride that bike on the freeway. The, the cordial tires didn't do that at all. And I was thinking, hmm, if I had, if I had a W800, I would put a pair of the cordials on the, on my W800 just to see if it solved the problem because there's not a lot of choices in that 18, 19 comp wheel combo. So right. there's a little tip for you W800 fans. If you don't, if you don't like the way it behaves on the freeway, you might want to check those cordial tires out as odd as that sounds because you'd think Dunlop would have it, but you know, they can only test for a certain amount of things. And I guess rain grooves on the freeway is not, are not one of them on that bike. Right. So, right. but, but overall, it sounds like, it sounds like an enjoyable riding experience. Oh yeah. It's super great. I mean, it's just everywhere you go, you turn heads in a positive way. People like it. The bike actually sounds really good when you're accelerating, you're revving it up. It sounds cool. You know, okay. it has a really good sound. Looks good. You look good on it. You don't have to push the bike. You just enjoy the ride. Almost everything about this bike is bad, but it all works as a, as a whole. And it kind of reminds me of the Yamaha TW200 dual sport bike. As, right. as I wrote about right. it many years ago when it was newer, you know, I said, this bike has terrible suspension, bad tires, and yeah. a weak motor. But when you ride it, it's incredibly fun. Right. So right. sometimes balancing is more imp important than the performance aspects of it. And you have to... You have to accept the bike on its own terms, you know, and you have, you don't, you can't say, I want to go fast, forget it. You're not going to go fast, you know, or if, if you want to say, I'm going to relax and lay back, well, that's not the bike for you, or I want to look badass, you know, like I'm a, a pro street guy. No, you're not going to do that. You're just going to look like this guy, vintage guy sitting upright, kind of wide handlebars, kind of low, just riding around looking cool. And that's what it does. And when you park it, people will go cool old bike. And you'll go, oh, yeah, thank you very much. And then if they ask you, what year is it? And you tell them 2024, they'll go, what? You know, because it just doesn't look that way. And so uh, I think they did a great job with it. And for $48.99, that's, you know, that's almost an impulse buy for a lot of people. Yeah. If you're somebody like that and you say, you know, what? I have space for another bike in my garage and I'd like something for just tooling around town. You, it's hard to imagine a bike that would work better for that. You know, it's and if, if you want the attention, you know, I mean, if you want to buy a Honda CB300F, which is about the same price or something like that, you know, okay, that's cool. And that's a great bike and it works great and it's faster, you know, and it handles better. And you can use it as a little sport bike in the canyons. This bike doesn't do that, but I will tell you that you will get a lot more attention, a lot more finger pointing and a lot more thumbs up and a lot more questions riding the Benelli Imperial 400 than almost any bike you can buy. Because right. it really does look like a bike from the fifties or forties, even. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really good-looking machine. Like you say, it's they've they've really got that retro thing right. I mean, you know, the 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 spoked wheels, the pea shooter exhaust, that that split seat, you know, with the with the passenger seat on the back, and you know, the chunky fenders. It's a, but it's a great-looking bike. It, it's, uh, you know, and. And people that are attracted to those kind of looks aren't going to care about the performance. You just, as long as it, you know, rides reliably and gets you around from A to B, like I said, it's a great around town bike. 
I, I like it. Yeah, I think that the bike, the engine should be reliable. I, you know, I was kind of looking around and because it's been around for a while in Asia and it has a good reputation. So it's not like you're right. buying something that's, that's brand new. And it's like, oh, I don't know about this. It's a, the, the bike is the, the motor's well tested and, you know, it's incredibly understressed. You know, the only stress on it is the bike weighs like 450 pounds, which is a lot for a bike that puts out like 21 horsepower, you know, so there's that stress of that. But it, as I said, the the rev line's at six, but that, that bike revs to seven without even thinking about it. And then it hits like a rev limiter. So it's kind of like seven's the the real limit, but it has attack. Oh, that was another funny thing. The speedometer, you know, has two round clocks, you know, and they this traditional styling and everything. The speedometer, the big numbers on the outside are kilometers per hour, and then there's little tiny numbers on the inside that are the miles per hour. Oh, and I was first okay. like, oh, that's not very convenient. And then I was thinking, I'm not speeding on this bike. I can go as fast as I want. I'm still probably not speeding. So <laughs> it doesn't matter, you know. It's like that's just not an issue. And uh, yeah, so the bike is really super fun to ride it's not going to get you into trouble it doesn't encourage you to get into trouble oh i mentioned the brakes before uh there are discs the front disc is okay you know for the speeds you're going generally it's fine but if you need to slow down fast like somebody cuts in front of you you need to slow down fast the rear brake does matter you put your foot on that rear brake it will slow down a lot faster than if you use the front wheel only and that's true of a lot any kind of bike that doesn't have a lot of forward you know you're never going to do a nose wheelie on this bike you know the rear wheel is always <laughs> going to be on the ground so right. with all that weight on the ground the rear wheel the rear brake has much more impact than if you're you know uh who's that guy in world Superbike that does the gigantic nose wheelies going into the oh top rack rasgatli glue exactly yeah he doesn't care about the rear brake he doesn't. He, I can't imagine he uses it. <laughs> His rear wheel has never been on the ground during braking, so he doesn't. Yeah. Those the rear his rear brake pads. He uses the same ones the entire season. Right. Yeah, I would imagine so. Yeah. Whereas this bike, the rear brake is is a important. In fact, you when I, I get heat from people, they'll say, "Well, you shouldn't, you know, do this," but. We all learned that people that know how to ride that you should use the, the, the braking powers in the front brake. And generally that's true. But that's not always as true as it is. It's not as true on some bikes as it is on others. And so part of me testing this bike was just riding around and only using the rear brake, you know, because some people do that. And right. especially people like that are on this level or people that would this bike would appeal to. So I was, you know, it's fine just using the rear brake. Again, if I needed to sl- slow down more, more quickly, I would have the front brake available. But if I wanted to just use the rear brake all day, that was never an issue. You know, there's a, a lot of engine compression braking, although it is a very low compression engine. I mean, can you believe eight and a half to one? Wow. That is, that's, that's low compression. Yeah. You know, it, in modern terms, I mean, that used to be, that would be a high compression engine in this, you know, 60s. But now, you know, that's like super low. Yeah. But it still has good engine braking you know, in, in compression braking, you know, you have ABS, you, you don't have traction control or any of this, you know, obviously there's no power modes. I mean, it's going slow enough and this tr- engine, the throttle response is slow enough. It's like rain mode all the time. Right. right. You know, when I, Nick was Ed helping me at the story, he's like, you're kind of mentioning that it's really slow a lot. And it's like, well, it's really slow. And I don't want anybody to be fooled by that. Right. 
but and if you're put off by that, if you say, I have to have a fast bike, this is totally not the bike for you. But if you want to ride around and just have a good time and be casual about it, enjoy the, the town and the scenery, then this bike is great. And, and again, for less than $5,000, it is a pretty cool bike that a lot of people, if they know what they're getting into and they want to have that spot in the garage for something like that, it's, it's definitely worth considering strongly. Yeah. Okay. All right. It sounds, uh, sounds like an interesting entry into the market. I, I'll, uh, I like Benelli as a brand. It'll be interesting to see what else they come up with. Oh yeah. I mean, anybody like us, that has been around for a while remembers the, the, hey, well, we don't really remember the heyday of Benelli cause that was probably more like the fifties when they right. were like in MotoGP and the equivalent of MotoGP or riding GP bikes and stuff. But in even maybe it's a little bit in the sixties, but even for us, we remember like the Benelli six, you, sure. you listeners out there may not yeah. know, but there was a there was a Benelli six in the 1970s when yeah. Honda came out with the inline four. Benelli said, "Well, we'll have an inline six. And this yeah. is not double red cam, liquid cooled inline six, like you know, like the new uh, BMW. This was an air cooled, two valve per cylinder, you know, overhead cam, single overhead cam motor. In fact, it yeah. kind of looked. You remember it, Arthur? It looked like the Honda CB750." It was actually essentially a 404 Honda with two extra cylinders on it. Aha. Okay. So, yeah. but it looked like a Honda motor. It did. Yeah. It had that shape, you know, and it, so. It definitely did. And, uh, you know, that's, it was just a cool bike. And really cool, for yeah. a lot of people, that that was like a, a cool, you know, thing. And so if the Benelli folks are listening, if you'd like to build a new six cylinder bike, like retro bike like that, that would be a cool thing to have. <laughs> very and, much so yeah and so uh and who knows maybe they'll put out like one of those parallel you know or horizontal i should say horizontal singles so there's a lot of opportunities in my mind with that benelli brand if the imperiale 400 is successful i would assume that we would see more of them if it's not i, I guess we'll see more leoncino type bikes and they also in other countries they have a Le or they have a leoncino 700 that we didn't get ever and if anybody that remembers our review of the Leoncino 500, I, the bike is super overbuilt. You could put a thousand cc motor in that bike, and it wouldn't flex. And it had huge torques, <laughs> and it was way over, way way overbuilt. So you could put a 700 in, it would just make it better. There's no way it would be like, well, that's too much motor for that chassis. It's like, nah, it's still not enough, but it will take it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I'm really interested in seeing, you know, what Benelli can do with its history. You know, it has so much to, to, to pull on. And then the modern thing, you know, is they're making it these adventure bikes that, again, are pretty good, but they're kind of heavy and kind of overbuilt. So they need to work on that a bit, but they're also inexpensive. So that's, you know, it all, you know, that all works in, in different ways together. So what was the build quality like on this? I mean, does it have that sort of Chinese feel to it or does it feel like a you know a more conventionally built motorcycle as far as we're concerned in the west it's it's kind of a mix it depends on where you look again the foot pegs were just really grim it's like there's this bar this or flat pressed steel thing that goes underneath the frame and is then bolted to the frame with rubber mounting and then right. it just goes after the foot pegs it's just like this you know curved steel and when you get on the bike and you push down the foot peg it actually pushes the peg you can you can push the peg down just with your foot and if you push hard like on the right side you know it will it pushes down on the brake pedal because the brake pedal rests against this 
So, you know, I mean, it's, in, in practicality, you're riding around, you're not pushing down hard on the on the foot peg, so it doesn't matter. But it's it's a cheesy design that they you know could be better. But the motor looks super nice. It's got a the the Benelli Lion on the uh, valve head cover, really cool. Uh, right. The the fork looks good. The wheels look good. You know, the, the again the product about the overbuilding the calipers brake calipers are gigantic it's like what yeah. is this they don't even work that good it's like just buy some better ones that are smaller you know so there's a lot of places and it also has like this little frame around that runs around the back end that runs you know kind of from the subframe point lower mounting point to the you know around the fender and then to the other side and i was looking around and in in uh, Asia, they have like leather saddlebags that you can mount on the bike. And I don't know if they're going to bring them in here, but as I said in my review, they should because it looks really cool with the leather saddlebags. Okay. So you know, it has that kind of World War II look, you know, like you're going out, you know, onto the battlefield. You've got, you know, your ammo in there to help, you know, give it to the riders or the, 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 the other soldiers. So, you know, there's, and it would look cool and it would make the bike actually pretty practical. It, it would be the great, like run down to the store bike, you know, right. Especially, cool. in a, especially in like a state where you don't have to wear a helmet. Right. There's certain bikes where you just go, man, I don't need to wear a helmet on this. I could just wear the, don the, the cloth cap and just ride around and I'm good, you know? And I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a, I don't, I don't want to say I'm an all the gear all the time guy, but I'm pretty gear conscious and I care about things like CE back protection stuff which I, I can still wear on my body, you know, right. but, but you know, the helmet, it's like it, you know, I, it, in our photo shoot, I wore an open face helmet, you know, and it felt perfect on that bike, you know, right. you're feeling the wind and you're feeling the bugs and, and it's that <laughs> visceral feel of riding a motorcycle, you know, and, and that's, we all know that that's why people ride vintage bikes because they have that visceral, visceral feel to them that doesn't exist on a modern bike. You know, and right. part of it's just the imperfections. There's something about the imperfections that make it feel more real. And yeah. so that's yeah. kind of what this is. It's like it's slow and, you know, the brakes aren't that great. The handling isn't that great, you know, the, but it's the brakes aren't that great, but it's still amazing to ride. And it, I would tell anybody that if has any sort of interest in the way that bike looks to, to get to take a text ride or get a ride on one, because when you do that, you'll be going, oh, you'll either, you'll either say, wow, this is perfect. I love it. Or you go, it's too slow. I can't ride this. Right. And you know, it just depends on your, your mindset. But for me, uh, I like to go fast. I go fast all the time, but I don't have to go fast all the time. Sometimes I just want to cruise around and, you know, go down Sunset Boulevard and check out the different shops and look <laughs> at my surroundings while I'm riding. And so I don't have to go as fast as I possibly can. You know, it's about the ride rather than just the speed. And so that's, that's who would have to, you know, that's who would be happy with this bike somebody who can appreciate that aspect of it of motorcycling that doesn't always have to be i'm going as fast as i can look out everybody <laughs> you know if you've got the right mindset it sounds like a great bike like really enjoyable it's going to tick a couple of really strong boxes and okay the rest not so much but it depends on who you are whether you're attracted to it or not it sounds great yeah. which is true of any motorcycle of course yeah as you always say all right hey don thank you very much appreciate it of course, totally enjoyed it. In our second segment this week, editor-at-large Neil Bailey chats with author Rob Brooks. Rob is the founder of the RoadDirt.com website, 
and he also has authored a couple of books available on Amazon as well. Despite a bit of a rough start to his motorcycling career, Rob has most definitely found his passion, and he clearly plans to keep exploring the world of motorcycles for a long time to come. I really blame my father. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, I remember as a kid, um, him regaling us with stories, me and my two younger brothers, of when he was a teenager, 19, late mid-late 1950s. Uh, he graduated high school in 1958, I think, 1958 or 59. But when he was 16 years old, he bought his first motorcycle. Um, he, uh, he bought, it was a 1954 Triumph Tiger 500. Um, I don't know, I can't remember whether that's the, you know, what was, what was its numerical designation, the T100, I, I can't remember, but anyway, but he- Wasn't he, that the one that Ted Simon rode around the world, the Tiger 500 single carb or something? Was, yeah, it was a single carb, it wasn't so it a was dual a, carb, it, so was, it, was it was a, a single AMOL. So I think it was a T100, wasn't it? You might be right. I think, yeah, but I know he, he and the way he described the bike, he used to describe it to us, was, um, you know, it had, a, it had a completely chromed frame, end to end, had a little peanut tank. Um, it wasn't the original tank on it. It had a little peanut tank, about a two and a half gallon peanut tank on it. Probably similar to the Tiger Cub 250, you know, that came later. And, uh, and then it, it was stripped down, didn't have any instruments on it. Um, no front rear rear fenders or base a little bit of a fender in the back were just like one of those bolt-on little pads and um, He rode the crap out of that thing, uh, you know, and he, he's told he's as a kid He told us all kinds of stories uh, He rode he raced a Harley WL that a friend of his had once and smoked it and he outran he outran cops. He grew up outside a suburb outside of Did Boston. Did it have lights and, and it had a headlight on it but uh, no turn signals, no rear-facing mirrors. No you license know, and plates. No instruments. He really didn't know how fast he ever went. One time, a friend of his and on a, on a Harley WL, they, they went as, they raced down this long stretch for several miles, just winding it all the way up through the gears, and his friend indicated that he had pegged the meter on his Harley, which was 100 miles an hour. And my dad rolled on a little bit more and left it left him in the dust. He said, "I never knew how fast it was, but it was in the triple digits." And uh, and he actually the first motorcycle he ever rode was that friend of his WL the year before when he was fifteen. You know, he, he rode it down the street and back, and fell in love with motorcycles. So by the time my brothers and I were growing up, um, he had he had already he he owned in, during our childhood and adolescent years he owned two or three different heart different, not Harleys, I'm sorry, different um, Triumphs. Always was a Triumph guy. Um, a, Bonneville, a 650 Bonneville that I think was a, a 1972. Um, he owned a, uh, uh, a TR6 for a while. And he had usually enough extra parts hanging from pegs in the garage where he really could have almost built a third one, you know. And, um, was he pretty handy mechanically? Yes, very. Which I am not. <laughs> I didn't get. I didn't get that gene, but um, he could. He could tear down, repair, fix, rebuild, or just flat destroy. You know any petrol-powered engine. He just. He just was a master mechanic. He was a mechanic in, 
in the Air Force. He was a mechanic for Delta Airlines for decades until he retired. And the first motor he ever pulled apart, he was like eight years old and pulled apart his dad's gas-powered two-stroke mower and rebuilt the carburetor and stuff at eight years old. So yeah, my dad was quite good mechanically. And, uh, and we, I just, we, we, we were into dirt bikes and, and mini bikes. So he was quite happy for you to have them, obviously. He was, yeah. There was no, no, no you know, obstacle to getting onto the motorcycle. No, he didn't really, he wasn't all that keen on, on me street riding when I came of age. Um, but dirt biking, we had um, little, you know, little YZ80s, Yamaha YZ80s. Before that, just little Coleman and Sears and Roebuck mini bikes that you'd just bounce through the woods and up and out across the yard with. And uh, where was this you were, you grew up? Grew up, um, they were originally, him and my mother were originally from Massachusetts. He was, he was in the Air Force. I was born when he was in San, stationed in San Antonio, Texas at a, at a Randolph Air Force Base there. He rolled out and went back to Massachusetts where my two younger brothers were born. And then uh, the airlines moved him to Miami, Florida for we grew up late 60s into the early 70s down there. And then we moved to the south side of Atlanta, Georgia when I was like in fourth grade, I think. So, so you didn't start riding until you got here to Georgia. Right. Yeah. I think the first time I ever threw a leg over a mini bike, it wasn't even one of ours. It was a cousin of mine who lived in the next town over. They had a little Coleman um, mini bike that uh, it may have been like a 40cc or something. And I think the first time I rode it, I was in like sixth grade. Um, and then um, they eventually bought like a little Trail 90. And by that time, my dad was getting us little dirt bikes and then eventually, you know, little little Yamaha motocross bikes, little, you know, the little YZs, which were quite a handful for a little kid, you know. Did you, did you chase down dirt bike racing or were you just like guys just doing We were just kids riding? playing and blasting around in the woods on them. I never, never had an inclination to, to race, although I used to love watching racing as a kid on CBS Sports and stuff like that. Hurricane Bob Hanna and these other guys. And, um, but yeah, we just were just a bunch of Georgia kids, little Georgia kids with miles of woods behind us that we cut trails and, and, uh, back through the woods and rode bicycles and mini bikes and dirt bikes back there in, into our adolescent years. And then how did that roll into your first street bike? It was interesting because in high school, several of my friends started riding. They started getting street bikes and a couple of them had wrecks and everything because they didn't go through any formal training. So here was a guy, my dad, who, you know, had ridden motorcycles, even when he was in the service, when he was in the Air Force, he, he had Cushman's that he would hop up and, you know, and he's, he's ridden his entire, but yet he didn't want me getting my motorcycle license. He didn't want me riding on the streets. He said, it's just, it's not safe now. He said it was, I was, he, he, he told me once, I was young and stupid. I don't want you to be young and stupid. I don't want you riding on the streets until you get older. So, I, you know. I, I I didn't in high school, you know, and then it was, and then by the time you graduate high school, of course I had my car and then it was girls and then it was after graduation and it was off to college and, and then eventually I met Lisa and we, you know, we married and life just kind of got in the way of motorcycle riding until 1996. So it was a big hiatus. Big hiatus from 
1981 to 1986. I didn't even really ride dirt bikes or anything, 1981 to 96 rather. And, um, and I can remember driving home from work one day, headed, headed down a little back country road toward home. And uh, somebody had, out on a street corner at the end of their long driveway, there was a, uh, a Honda, um, I think it was a V65 Magna for, with a for sale sign on it. And it was black tank, blacked out engine with gold striping around, the around both sides of the tank. And there was just something about that bike that just arrested my attention. I pulled over the side of the road for the next like five days, three, of, three to five days, just gawking at this motorcycle that I knew, one, Lisa wouldn't want me to buy, and two, I didn't really have the money for it at the time to spare. We were young, married, with, with just starting a family. But I would, going to work and going home from work, I was stopping and salivating over that motorcycle at the end of a driveway for like five days until the dude sold it. And by that time, it was too late. The, the, you know, the beast was awakened. And I was like, <laughs> I started strategizing, one, what am I going to buy? I, want, I started searching the classifieds before the internet and stuff like that. And two, how can I convince my wife to let me buy one? And, uh, but it's just funny how that, that one bike at the end of the drive, bike, which was, uh, I think it was either 95 or 96, 1995 or 90, 1996 that kind of picked my interest and started stirring that, stirring that pot in my head, you know, that, oh my gosh, I want to ride. I want to ride. I got to ride. Oh my gosh. Took a motorcycle safety course in, um, 1997, one of the basic MSF courses. And then you know, somehow convince my wife to, you know, to let me, let me start looking. And the first motorcycle I ever bought was a, it was in 1997 after I took the MSF course. I bought a used 1993 Suzuki VS 800 Intruder. Had about 5,000 miles on it. And, um, good solid shaft drive by shaft drive, water cool, a little V twin, a little radiator up front. Uh, beautiful kind of a, metallic midnight blue um, paint scheme on the tank and the side covers and, every, and the they were a good thing. looking cruiser it was that was a and they I were ended sleek up, weren't they it they were was lean. it was very chopper looking kind of like mm. their larger 1400 at the time yeah. was the intruder 1400 just gorgeous looking kind of a factory chopper kind of look back before factory, factory chrome engine cases and valve yeah. covers and it even had like a, didn't have a chrome backrest as well no, the no. the backrest on it, it was metallic. You know, yeah, well, yeah, it was metallic in the back, and and um, but what I did do was I took both of the side covers off of that, and took them to a guy in town in the town of Snellville we lived in at the time, and had it and had the side covers chromed on it, so it looked really sharp. And then uh, I bought a set of of um, I want to say they were Jardines two into one on the right side and took it to a shop that installed them and then tuned it tuned the carbs for me and got got the got the you know the sound for the for that and the fuel and air mixture Imagine back in the deep dark days when you had carburetors yeah yeah you remember remember those remember, <laughs> remember, remember those things carburetors yeah and that i rode that bike for the next several years i just absolutely took them took the advanced rider course on it and then commenced to just immersing myself in motorcycle riding and 
found a group of guys in the church we were at that rode, and we started riding together on Sunday afternoons, sometimes on Saturdays, and it just be, it just became my thing. It became my passion. You know? How far are we from Atlanta here? We're about we're we're probably a good. It's about thirty miles, but it's about an hour north northeast of Atlanta up here in Decula, Georgia. D-A-C-U-L-A. Because we are in some beautiful riding. Now this I is know not... you get just south of us, just yeah. outside. I just run a little bit southeast of here, and you and I have been on it before. We're out in the country. You're out in the rolling Georgia countryside all the way to the historic town of Madison. Yeah, it's not like the North Georgia mountains or Western North Carolina mountains, but it's really nice riding. And while you imagine with a cruiser, it's a little bit more open, a little bit flatter, a little bit longer. Just rolling hills and rolling countryside. corners. Farm, you know, miles and miles of farmland beyond us and ranches, cattle ranches, horse ranches. A lot of that is is just really big, not very far from where we are right now. And yeah. even where we lived, because at that time in the 90s, we lived down in a town of Snellville, which is still northeast Atlanta, but a little bit, about, about 15, 20 minutes south of where we currently live right now. But mm. it's just, yeah, you head out of here a little bit and you're out of sp- sprawling suburbia. You're in the country. Oh, it was yeah. a perfect place for me to start, you know, getting my my legs under my riding legs under me on that on that old yeah because you weren't just riding out into traffic. the country mm-hmm. yeah I wasn't contending with traffic just riding out into the countryside and teaching myself, you know, throttle and braking and leaning and you know just good motorcycle control, and on a really on a small lightweight but quick flickable motorcycle mm-hmm. for its day. That little Intruder was a phenomenal bike. What was your decision to sell that and move to another bike? Was it? It wasn't. I got in a wreck. Got a guy hit me. <sighs> and we moved up here to, um, or getting ready to move up here to Decula, just a little bit north of Snellville. Um, I was working up here, heading home one day on the on the on the Intruder, and a guy had come to on a side street, had pulled up to a stop sign and it stopped. So I was just kind of motoring on past him. And all of a sudden, I see him in my peripheral vision. Dude just jumps out into traffic and jumps right into me. I hit him at his left front headlight and went over his hood. So it destroyed the bike and nearly destroyed me. It broke both of my legs, put me in the hospital and then in rehab for another year, about a year, year and a half or so. Ouch. Learning, yeah, multiple surgeries, learning how to walk again. And yeah. I'd never won a pretty legs contest, but they work, man. <laughs> I got back on my legs, yeah. So, so yeah, it what, destroyed my bike and it almost destroyed me, but not quite. Wow. I knew you'd been in a wreck from previous conversations. I didn't realize it was like a year to a year and a half of rehab after that. Yeah, well, just, yeah. Getting just back to normal. Getting yeah. back to normal, getting the strength mm. back in my legs. It was two surgeries per each leg, installing hardware and then uninstalling that hardware. Because I, I went to a, you know, orthopedic that didn't want to leave rods and wires and pins in me. Mm. Took them all out about 18 months later. And all during that time and even after it, I was doing physical therapy, you know, to get my legs strong and working again. At one point, I thought I'd never walk correctly again. But you know. how did so? How did you? Uh, how did you decide to get back to motorcycling after such a horrific accident? Was it always you know, on the cards or? It, I think for me it was. I mean, you would think after a horrific crash like that, I never lost consciousness. I remember every detail of the crash, flipping over the guy's hood and everything. Um, 
And you'd think that that would be traumatic. And for a lot of people, it is. It's traumatic enough for like, well, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm done with this. I think I'll go take up, you know, tennis or golf or something. But I spent the next few months just in misery. One, I was in a lot of pain trying to recover. But two, I was afraid I wouldn't be able to ride again. I, I, I don't, it's hard to explain unless you're a motorcyclist and, and and they'll get it, you know, that I had so fallen in love with, with motorcycling that I had discovered as a, as a kid, took a bunch of years away from it, and then got bit by it again. I couldn't wait to get back on a motorcycle again, you know. And a year to the day after the accident, a friend of mine named, named Harold uh, at the church we attended up here in this north part of the county we live in, um, he arranged for another guy to let me borrow a uh, Honda Shadow 750, which was a nice small little cruiser. And he took me out. He he came and picked me up and took me over to his place, over to this guy's place that had this bike. And I picked up pick up this little Shadow 750. And um, Harold had I think some kind of a Yamaha, maybe it was a, a LTD 550 or something. And I spent an entire day hours and hours it was like maybe 120 130 miles or more just riding with him getting my legs back and um, getting my confidence back and I didn't tell the wife I didn't tell my wife that that I had done this that I had gotten back on a bike a year to the day after my crash and my rehab and everything else in fact I think I was still doing some physical therapy once or twice a week even then you know just wanting to fine-tune and get, make sure my legs were good and strong. And, but um, it was about six months after that that I actually had the nerve in the living room after dinner one night to tell my wife that, hey, you know, my friend Harold, I, I went and I went and she says, I know you did. <laughs> I was like, what, you, you knew? <laughs> yeah, I knew you. She said, I knew you would and I knew you did. And uh, she joked, kind of half-jokingly, she says, you know, um, but it's okay, you know. I've got a fat insurance policy on you, so if you die, I'll grieve. But I'm moving to Tahiti. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, and um, so, yeah, you know. So the first bike after that, um, she knew I wanted I wanted one again. I started looking at different things, and I'd go to different dealerships just just so I'd, so they'd let me ride one. Had a helmet gloves and things like that jacket and all and um, um, I remember a friend of mine named Tommy asking me once if you could get any if money were no object you could ride whatever you wanted to ride what would you get on and I said I've always loved the look of the Harley Davidson Heritage Classic Heritage Softail Classic at that time and I said I'd love something like that but I probably I would never be able to afford one of those and um, Within a month or two, this was about, I guess, the, the following year after, you know, the accident and almost a year after tell it, con finally confessing it to my wife, who already knew. Um, a friend of mine who owned a, uh, a Yamaha Motorsports, uh, you know, um, like out, uh, outboard motors and boats and stuff like that, Yamaha boats and everything, um, Yamaha, a lot of their headquarters are in here in Atlanta now. They're not in Southern California anymore, the motor, a lot of their motorsports and everything. 
And uh, this friend of mine named Lee calls me up and says, hey, there's a, I know one of the, um, one of the higher ups in Yamaha Finance here in Atlanta that um, has got a uh, 1998 Yamaha Royal Star Tour Classic that he doesn't ride anymore. It was given to him as a company bike, you know, for like some sales goals and some, you know, some company goals and things like that. And he says, would you be interested in talking to him? And I was like, oh, heck yeah. So I met this guy for lunch. And um, he told me his story about the bike, that they had given it to him. And then he put about $2,800 worth of chrome and farkles and engine enhancement, just did stuff to it rode it for a year or two, and all of his riding buddies were riding Harley-Davidson, so he parked this gift motorcycle in his garage at 5,100 miles and bought himself a Harley. So he wanted to know my story. I told him about the story about growing up, my love for riding, and the, and the crash, and how I just can't, get, I can't shake that passion. I've got to ride again. And he looked across the table at me in lunch, and he, he kind of looked out the window for a second, and he looked back at me, and he says, well, I'll sell you my bike for what I have in it. $2,800 for a 1998 Yamaha Royal Star Tour Classic. And that was in, that was in 2001 or 2002. So, so it's virtually a brand new bike. I mean. Yeah, 5,100 miles on with a brass, fresh, fresh set of Metzlers on it he had just put on it. With all the bells and whistles. And he just, yeah, dude just loved my story and just felt a comp and just, I'll give it to you for what I've got in it. That is fantastic. So I called my wife and I said, You're never uh, going to believe this? You're you? never going to believe this, but I found my bike, you know, I'm going to the bank. And, um, you know, the rest is, as they say, is history. I, How long did you keep that one for? I sold the Royal Star, um, I want to say two years ago. Oh, you had it a long time. Long time, yeah. A lot of miles it. on it? I think I, yeah, I, when I sold it, I want to say I had 104 or 106,000 miles on it. And, uh, you know, and I, my father helped me maintain it a lot in local shops and stuff, and I learned a few things on it myself. But I like to say about a lot of great brands, you know, four wheels or two wheels or four, that if you keep, you know, filters and fluids and things like that in them, that they'll run forever. And that Royal Star would have run forever. And really the only reason I sold it was because I bought this, this Triumph Bonneville, you know, this Street Cup 900 that I've got out there now in 2017, because I wanted to ride a Triumph. I wanted to own a Triumph like my father had owned and like we had grown. You know, I had ridden some a little bit, but not much. He wouldn't want me riding. But I remember his Triumphs as, as he was a kid and then as when we were kids. I, I had to have a Triumph. And I eventually just got where I got so used to how small, light, and flickable that Triumph was that I kind of, the old, I felt like the older I was getting, the heavier that Royal Star was getting. Because that's a water-cooled V4 yeah. shaft drive water buffalo that weighs like 825 pounds wet. Right. You know? Yeah. So it's a and big... uh, I got used to it. I mean, I rode the snot out of that thing all over the United States, back and forth, north and south, east and west. But I, So I you, just... you started doing some pretty significant touring on that. Then. Yeah, yeah, over the years with different friends and stuff like that. And just, but I finally had just gotten to the point a couple of years ago where I felt like, you know, I'm not getting any younger 
but it feels like it's getting heavier. I just, I need, I think I'm just going to stick with small, lighter weight bikes. And I sold it to a guy that, you know, was similar to me in the sense that he was about 10, 15 years younger than me. He says, I'm so excited to get this, he says, because my wife's going to ride with me. Both of my daughters want to ride with me. And my girls grew up on the back of that Royal Star. On different days, I would, with different ones of them, I'd take them to school or pick them up from school, you know, and stuff like that. So my wife never really rode much with me, but both of my girls rode with me regularly. They were, they were biker daughters. So, um, but they, would, they, had, they moved out, started their own lives, and it was like, you know, nobody's going to ride with me on this big water buffalo anymore. I'm not going to, you know, it's time to sell this thing. And that guy was the perfect buyer for it because he's, he wanted his, to do the he, same thing. Yeah, his wife wanted to ride and both of his girls wanted to ride with him. So it went to a good home. So there's, there's a few things that came out of this block of time with the, 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 the Yamaha. And obviously one was the book, which we can come back to in a minute. But yeah, also you're, spread, you're spending your time doing some significant voluntary work around the world at this point. Yeah. Um, Not doc- obviously motorcycle related, but it's a big part of your life and it all kind of ties together these days. It has, really. Um, in 2013, the doctor that my wife worked for since like the early 1990s, she still works for him, Dr. Ben Abraham, he's originally from Indonesia, Chinese Indonesian. And uh, the reason his name is Benjamin Abraham sounds very Hebrew is because uh, he came from a Christian family, very dedicated Christian. And uh, one of the practices in the Far East is that when somebody embraces a Christ, the Christian faith, they take on Old Testament and or New Testament biblical names. So his name is Benjamin Abraham. But he, re- he started a foundation called 127, 127 Legacy Foundation, 127 Legacy Foundation, based on a verse in the Bible, James 127, about caring for widows and orphans and things like that. And he started this foundation to assist um, women's shelters and children's homes and start medical clinics and things like that back in his homeland. And he asked me one day when I was in getting a checkup for something, he asked me if I'd, if I'd kind of be his executive director of, of his orphanage foundation that he had just launched. And I said, I don't know how to do that. I've never done anything like that before. And he says, well, I never have either. Let's learn it together. <laughs> And I was like, well, okay. So that began a journey I'm still on 10 years later. You know, every year we take teams over to Indonesia and we do on Sumatra, on Java, out on the island of Timor. Um, we, we, do, um, we work with several orphanages and, and um, children's homes and uh, built a medical clinic a couple of years ago in a little community on the island of Timor, kind of toward the eastern end of the island chain. And... Um, and, a, and a, recently, a women's shelter for abused, neglected, and abandoned, you know, women that are out on their own that need help and, uh, and their children. So, yeah, and, and yeah, it was funny. One of the times I was over there, you know, I just, I love the motorcycle culture over there because the Far East motorcycle culture is just, you know, it's not, they love motorcycling, but it's transportation to them, too. It's, it's. They carry, they go to the store and come back and bring their kids to school, you know, everything on little scooters and mo- mini bikes and, you know, mopeds and small displacement motorcycles, you know. I mean, if you're riding a 250, that's a big bike over there. Everything is, most everything over there is like 125s and smaller. 
And I got to ride a little bit over there. I don't have an international license. I couldn't really get out on main roads, but there's been a few times over there where I've, somebody's given me a bike and I've gotten to go blast around back country roads or back city streets and, and you know, in some of the towns and stuff. So I've gotten to kind of mesh, you know, my passion for volunteer work with motorcycling, even over there in Indonesia. So uh, it's been kind of fun. Still getting to do that, yeah. So in this interim period also, you, you wrote your first book, and 2013, yeah. How did her. that come about, or why? The why part. I, what was the catalyst for that? So you weren't actually writing and doing journalism at that point. I mean, you were just riding bikes and. In 2013, taking... by 2013, I had already been contributing for a few years. Okay. To um, motorcyclists, to Cycle World, to Motorcycle Classics. Oh, to, it had started that. It had yeah, been to some of the regional publications, Born to Ride, Full Throttle. I was starting to. I just I used to write I used to write periodically for Christian education publications, you know, children's ministry and youth ministry magazines and different things like that from time to time. And uh, one day I you know I, I used to subscribe to Motorcyclist magazine. I loved them, and uh, they they used to have a column which a lot of riders remember this toward the back of the magazine called Me and My Bike. And I submitted the story once. I just had the idea, I'm gonna see if I can get it published in there. I wrote a story about my crash and then the Royal Star and how the Royal Star got me back into writing. And Aaron Frank, who was the one of the associate editors then, emailed me back after sending the after I sent the copy and a few photos, said, uh, you're a pretty good writer. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna publish this and I'll let you know when, I'll send you a few copies. And hey, from time to time, if you write something, send it to us. We'll see if we can publish it for you. How did that transpire with you starting Road Dirt? My friend Phil Gauthier, Phil and I have known each other like 30-something years. I know you guys he does, have done some cool yeah, stuff. Yeah, we're buddies. Yeah, he, uh, he's done a lot of photography over the years. He does a lot of that. He, he's done a lot of that. He works in the, you know, in the internet and live streaming industries, has for years. But as a side ha hustle, he's, he's done a lot of photography. And uh, I can remember one day, it was, it was him and I were at an event somewhere in Athens, Georgia, covering something for for born to ride and we were out we were out taking a break out to lunch and um he made the statement filled it over lunch that um you know man because of your book and this column road dirt that you've been writing for several years for galetti he says you ought to launch your own thing you ought, you're you're already your own brand you ought to launch out and do your own thing and i i was like what why how how in the world I, I couldn't even get my head around that you know because my dream was to write for big publications like motorcyclists. I'd get on staff with one of them one day. And he said, he said, let me let you in on a little secret. He says, print media is on its way out. It's going to die. And uh, he says, if you launched wrote Road Dirt some way or another, took your brand and launched, and launched your own media, you know, your own like online magazine, your own website, you know, your own... YouTube, different things like that, you know, you won't have to, you won't have to unlearn print, you know, just to start launching your own thing. He says, I think you ought to launch your, you know, and I'll help, and he says, I'll help you do it. It's really cool. What did, so what have you got in the stable at the moment, bikes wise? You still got, you got. <coughs> I've, um, of course, of my own, I've got a, uh, that 2017 Triumph Bonneville Street Cup 900. And uh, I, last year about this time, I found on, on the internet a guy selling a fully restored, pristine 1978 K, Kawasaki KZ650 that 
was one of the bikes one of my friends had when I was a teenager that I told you about that I just lusted after that bike until he wrapped it around a tree and destroyed it. But I've always wanted, I've just always thought it was the beautiful little brother of the big Z900 or Z1000. It was the one that you had to have, yeah. Yeah, I wanted one, yeah. But I always thought the little Z, the little, you know, the little KZ650 was gorgeous. So I bought one. Guy sold it to me here from the other side of Atlanta. So I've got a little old vintage bike in the garage now that is, it's got four, it's, it's a four into one on the right side with a Delkovich exhaust and a, a professional Kawasaki, retired Kawasaki mechanic tuned it for me. So it's obscenely loud, but hilariously <laughs> fun to ride. It's got four little filter pods on it. Yeah, so it, it, you hear it sucking away when you go down yeah, the road. Yeah, it ran kind of lean until he, you know, tuned it for me, but. And then um, got a little mini bike for the grandkid one day. But, uh, and then right now we have a uh, Royal Enfield Scram 411 that's uh, a fun little dual sport. That is a crazy fun little bike. Mm. I, I've enjoyed that thing, banging around on that. I'm not that good in the dirt, but I'm getting better at it with that bike. And then Yamaha gave me, back in September, a couple of days before my birthday, they loaned me, signed out a brand new, it had 33 miles on it, um, Tracer 9 GT Plus, the one that's got the little adaptive cruise control and the unified braking all linked together, first of its kind. And it's still here. They've never come and picked it up. So I've, it's, it's become a long-termer. I've had it since the first week of September, and here we are. <laughs> You know, approaching the second. It's come from a loaner to a long term, right? And I've, I've, we've done a ton of stories with boat with, with, with it. You know, I've gotten all kinds of stories with it. So I guess they're leaving it with me because I keep producing content with it because I love that bike. It's not that pretty, but I love riding it. And then we just gave back last week Triumph. Um, we had a bobber, their 1200 bobber. What did you think of that? I absolutely thought that was the most gorgeous motorcycle. Very vintage looking. It really looks like what I picture my dad's old Triumph stripped down Tiger 500 probably. He, my dad solo, never had any pictures. Solo seat he never kept, never kept any pictures or lost them over the years of his oh. old Tiger 500. But everything he's described it, I kind of can see it in, in that. It's hard to ride. I don't like the rear suspension on that bobber. It's like, a, it's like riding a jackhammer. It's hard, it's, and it's non-adjustable. It's a pain in the butt, literally. <laughs> And back to ride. No adjustment. But I'll, on the suspension. Yeah, but I'll I'll sit I'll set it in the driveway and take pictures of it and drool over it all day long. It's beautiful. So would you say that you're more crazy about motorcycles now than you were? I mean, how's you know one of the, one of our things that we say at Road Dirt? All the guy, a lot of the guys say it is. It was coined by Ted Edwards. He says relate with us. Relationships are everything. Relationships makes motorcycling better. Well, that's why we ride bikes, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, the people you get to. It's fun to go out and ride a motorcycle. It's even more fun when you got your mates to do it with you. You know, when you're riding with friends. Well, Rob, thanks so much for coming on the cast and telling us a uh, yeah, yeah, pretty interesting motorcycle life. And of course, I don't think we touched on your second book. It's just come out. That's right. Road Dirt 2 just came out. Yeah, just dropped a few days ago. You know, more musings and ramblings from the ride life. Yeah, you can find them both of them on Amazon. They're yeah. And I, on quite a different Publishing. book, this second one, obviously, because of how everything's A lot of things have changed in the last 10 years, yeah. Yeah. So some of it difficult, some of it really good. I write about it all, warts and all, in that book. It's Well, congratulations on publishing your second book, because I know your first one was quite successful, and, um, you know, following your passion on motorcycles and uh, creating your own outlet. So 
Thanks for coming on, Rob. Thank you. Yes, sir. Appreciate it.